All right, Exodus chapter 20 is where we pick back up. God has led the children of Israel now to the Mount of Sinai at this point, and we know is about to give to them at this point the law, which we'll be looking at in great detail in the chapters ahead of us, uh, most specifically this evening as we look at chapter 20, probably some of the more familiar sections of what we would uh, find ourselves to be acquainted with when we talk about the law of God. We find here the Ten Commandments uh, received by the children of Israel. And remember we saw in chapter 19 where basically the Lord had brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. He began to manifest his presence among them in just a really powerful way. They were overwhelmed. Uh, it says that the, you know, the mountain was uh, smoking and there was fire and thunderings and God was just manifesting the power of his presence uh, as he was asking Moses to prepare the people to bring them close to the presence of the Lord because God wanted to manifest himself and reveal himself to them and most specifically to actually speak to them. Uh, and you'll notice as we come now to chapter 20, as they're there, they're prepared, uh, they've washed themselves, they've readied themselves, there's a sense of consecration that has happened among the congregation of God, and they're now ready to hear what God would want to speak into their lives. And chapter 20, verse 1 begins very directly by just saying to us, and God spoke all these words. Now, I don't think we should overlook chapter 20, verse 1 there, and God spoke all these words. Uh, I point that out to your attention. If you notice with me as well, uh, as you look over uh, in verse 22, it tells us, The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, I point this out because I want you to take notice that when the children of Israel were receiving the Ten Commandments, they were hearing the Ten Commandments directly from God himself. This was a divine moral code that God himself was speaking into the uh, ears in some form exactly how that voice was heard we're not told but we are clearly told the biblical account that it was God himself who from heaven was somehow speaking in an audible way whereby the people were hearing directly from God. In fact, uh, we'll notice as we get uh, toward around chapter uh, 20 verse like 19 or so where the people even say to Moses because they're so overwhelmed with hearing the voice of God. They say to Moses, you speak with us. We will not hear. Let God, let not God speak with us lest we die. They're so overwhelmed because they heard the very voice of God themselves. Now I point that out because though the uh, movie uh, is you know wonderfully done. Charlton Heston, that whole four-hour-long flick of the Ten Commandments. If you remember in the movie, when you see Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, if you notice in the movie, it sort of gives the impression that he went up into the mount where the presence of God was, and then there's you know sort of that finger of God with that kind of lightning bolt that comes out, you know. To you know, and it cuts out the tablets of stone. And then as God gives each one of the Ten Commandments, there's this, you know, again, like a lightning bolt going in and inscribing into the stone. And the impression is, is that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And then Moses came down and brought the commandments to the people. Well, that's not accurate to the biblical account. The biblical account, now that makes 
for a great movie. I mean, it kind of makes it very exciting and, you know, dramatic and, wow, that's pretty, you know, my God, the fire of God. And, and listen, I believe certainly there seems to be that ultimately there are tablets of stone and most likely Moses then ultimately did go into the presence of God where God gave him a written form, if you would, and inscribed them on the tablets of stone, which they ultimately possessed. But in the original receiving of the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us God spoke those words, it says, to the people. And the people heard God's voice. In fact, they were so overwhelmed by hearing God's voice, it terrified them the place where they said to Moses, please, if he gives us an 11th commandment, we're going to die. Just let him talk to you for now on. You be a mediator for us. We, we, we can't stand to hear the voice of the Lord anymore because it was such a powerful, awesome experience as they heard the word of the Lord. But again, God was speaking directly to his people. So these things that we're looking at here, again, have a real you know, sacredness to them. And there's something very special about them because it is something that God communicated directly from his voice to the ears and the hearts of people in the present moment that they were hearing. There, there was no mediator communicating. God was not using a prophet. He was not speaking. He was speaking directly his word, his will in these Ten Commandments, giving them directly to the people who were hearing them themselves. And again, that, that sort of raises the level of responsibility. Because this is, this is first-hand information, if you understand what I'm saying. They're, they're hearing directly from God, which makes them all the more accountable when they know they've heard directly from God, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Because Look, there's, no, there's nothing lost in transmission. You can't blame the messenger. Uh, God said that directly to them. They heard the voice of God for themselves. And you know what? That raises the level of accountability because when a person hears directly from God themselves, then they're directly accountable to God for what he's spoken to them. And it is, is it not? In the same way these people were, were sort of just awestruck and overwhelmed when they heard the voice of God themselves, they have a very powerful response in their experience and it kind of overwhelms them. You know, th there are those occasions when the Lord communicates to us in a very powerful, personal, direct way and you know that the voice of the living God is speaking something into your life. And, you know, is that not just one of the most life-changing experiences? When you've actually heard the voice of God for yourself, whether in a still small voice like, you know, God and Elijah and that whole experience there, or, or whether through whatever form, you know, that God on occasion will condescend. And it's really an amazing thing to think about that. The God of heaven would condescend and communicate directly to his people in a personal way. But he's a personal God, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to speak to us in direct and personal ways. So God himself is speaking these words. And again, it increases our awareness of the level of sacredness because this was a divinely mandated moral code. These weren't 10 suggestions. These were 10 commandments. This was a moral code that God gave for the society 
of the nation of Israel for a moral basis for how they functioned as a people. And these were God's ideas. They weren't just, hey, well, what do you think might be some good things to kind of keep society civil? And, and no, these were God's words, God's commands given to the people. And certainly we need to have a level of reverence to realize where their origin was from and that God himself was speaking these because it's one of the few occasions where we have this experience. So often God's speaking through prophets and other ways, but here he's speaking directly to his people. And what he begins to say, we find in verse 2, is the first thing that God said to them is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. So the first thing God does before he issues any of the commandments the first thing he does is he gives a revelation of who he is. He says to them, listen, let's not be mistaken who is speaking to you. I am the Lord your God. I am the one true and living God. I'm not these foreign gods of the land or you know these idols that the Canaanites and other people around you are worshiping. I am Yahweh God, the one true and living God, the Lord your God. He says, who is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of bondage? In other words, before God asks anything of them and, or puts any requirement upon them, which he has the right to do, he's God. The first thing God does before he puts any requirement upon them or asks anything of them or makes a request is he first reminds them of what he has done for them. He says, remember, I am the God, he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who got you out of your bondage and your slavery that you were stuck in. And the idea is as God reveals himself and reminds his people of what he's done for them, that should prepare their heart to want to be more responsive to say, okay, then whatever you would ask of us, we would want to do. We would want to, in response, serve you in some capacity. And that's an important pattern because that becomes a pattern all throughout Scripture. Where before God ever asks anything of us, the first thing God does is reveal himself to us and tell us what he has done for us. Especially in the New Testament, this becomes the pattern where when you read the New Testament epistles, and we've spoken of this before, where God always tells us first what he has done for us. Because everything in our relationship with God is not based upon what we do, it's based upon what he's done and we only respond to the Lord in regards to what he asks of us out of a proper understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. And then we love him because he first loved us. And we walk worthy of the calling we've received because we understand all that he's done for us in Christ and the position we have in our righteous standing and and that he's seated us in the heavenly places. And, and when we understand what the Lord has done for us, it's out of that that we then say, okay, Lord, I, I owe you my obedience. I owe you my allegiance. And then there's a proper responsiveness because the Bible says the, com the commandments of the Lord, they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. And I would tell you, if, if at times you find yourself feeling that God's commands and requirements in his word in your life are burdensome, I would encourage you, perhaps the thing to do is to reacquaint yourself or maybe to go back and properly acquaint yourself with everything the Lord has done for you. And to come to realize the things he's accomplished on your behalf, the measure of the great salvation that we've experienced, even as they did in their deliverance, 
And it makes us then want to be more responsive. So he says, I am the Lord, your God, the one who brought you. Remember, he says, out of the land of Egypt, he had shown his power, his miracles, his wonders in their lives. And then he begins verse three to give them the first of these 10 commandments. He says, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me me he says there now uh, take note I, I think it's important to realize that the emphasis there should be upon the word no rather than upon the word before because sometimes people look at what god is saying there when he tells them look i don't want you to have any other you know idols or gods or other things that you would worship before me and some people put the emphasis on the word before and in a sense they think what god is saying listen uh, you can have other gods just don't have them before me. In other words, in priority. You know, as long as you let me be numero uno in your life, uh, you, know, you can worship Ashtoreth and Molech and, and in a sense you know, give yourself to the gods of sensuality and you can sacrifice your children to so the Canaanite gods and, and in a sense you can live a, you know, a, a, a life that's given to many different things as long as you keep me first in your life. Just don't have any other gods before me. I want to be first. As long as you let me be first... You can have experiences with all the other religious systems and, and everything else you want under the sun. And unfortunately, some people kind of almost have that attitude towards God to this day still, where, where they, they look in a sense as if God is just something you, you kind of add into your life. You know, God will just kind of make your life a little better. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to keep, you know, looking at pornography or I'm, I'm going to keep, you know, getting drunk or I'm going to keep, you know, being in, involved in this or that or I'm going to, you know, still maintain, you know, this belief system. But I'm going to add a little Jesus in too because Jesus, you know, they, they told me that Jesus will kind of make your life better. And, and so they want to add God in in a sense. Say, well, as, as long as I, I kind of just make sure I give the most of my time to God, I can still give devotion and dedication to all these other things. Listen, the, the emphasis there and the language when you look at it in the Hebrew, is that God is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. The, the emphasis being on the word no, and when he says before me, he's not talking about in order of, of priority. He's talking about before me, the idea is in my presence. You know, if someone were to, to stand right here, I would say they're standing before me. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're standing right before me. Hey, can't you see it? That, that's right before your face. It's right before your eyes. That's what God's saying here. You shall have no other God in my presence. Before me, there should be nothing else in your life that you give allegiance to or devotion to. Nothing and no one should have any allegiance and should be anything close to what I am in your life. And God says, I will not tolerate any other God in my presence because I am the one true and living God. God requires and desires absolute allegiance. Absolute allegiance. That we would leave behind everything else to follow him. Jesus so often would speak in those very drastic terms. Says, Look, if you're not willing to you know, leave everything else behind and take up your cross and follow me, just, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy to be a disciple. And Jesus would make very radical claims regarding allegiance. And here God is making a radical claim. There, there, nothing and no one will I allow to be in my presence before me between you and I because God wants 100% of our allegiance. 
Verse 4, he then goes on to say, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The idea, again, is, is something, you know, an idolatrous form, something that they would carve out, whether out of wood and overlay it with gold or something that they would mold out of gold and silver. He says, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, a relic or something of that like, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. So not, nothing that would represent nature. And again, many of the you know, polytheistic religions around them and the you know, Canaanite worship practices, they, they did this. They had carved images of things in nature and so on and so forth that they would use these relics and these things as a part of their worship system. And God says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So here God makes a prohibition against using any form of an idol or a relic and to use that, in a sense, in the process of worshiping him. Now, be careful here, because some people take verse 4 here, verse 4 and 5, and it's because they don't take verse 4 and 5 together in context, and they take this at times, I think, and they get a little out of balance, where, in a sense, they get the impression that God is saying it is absolutely wrong to have any images any forms, you know, any, any type of uh, thing that would be any type of an image of anything spiritual. So, to, you know, to, to make a cross, that's, you know, God says you shall not have no carved image. Or, you know, to, you know, to, to do a painting of Jesus. Oh, that's horrible. I can't believe anyone would do a painting of Jesus. And look, God's not prohibiting artistic expression. God's not prohibiting creative works and that people can't use their creativity in artistic expressions. Notice he's saying you shall not make something like a carved image and look at verse 5 and bow down to it or serve it. So God's not prohibiting the making of a cross to remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ or you know, the making of, of a dove as a representation of the Holy Spirit. You know, God forbid we have a carved image standing here behind me. You know, uh, what, what God is saying is you shall not make that and then bow down to it and serve it. The idea is that you begin to utilize it in an idolatrous way where that relic or image or thing is something that is used in the process of worship where you're bowing down and giving allegiance to this statue or this relic or something in some way where you begin to actually worship that created thing rather than the creator. So again, God is just prohibiting this because he understands that mankind's nature is like this. So often people want a point of contact and again, look throughout human history and even certain you know, religious circles that exist to this day still and how there needs to be you know, forms and idols and relics and things that people feel a need to have to utilize in the process of worship. And in a sense, God says, no, he says that that takes attention away from me. And he says, I'm a jealous God. And again, you know, God cannot properly be represented in some form that can be worshipped or served. And that's why, you know, again, it's interesting when you study the Bible, take note, think about this. There is nowhere in the word of God really where we are ever given a physical description of what Jesus Christ actually looked like. 
we're told that they plucked out his beard so we can assume that Jesus had a beard. We know that he was Jewish so we can kind of assume what he looked like. But if you really think about it, God has never in the word of God told us anywhere what Jesus even physically looked like. What his eye color was, what his hair color. I mean, we assume certain things, but why? Because God knows our nature, you know, that we then begin to take things to extents that we get overly attached and we, you know, get too involved in these kind of things. So, so God here prohibits that for our own good, that we would not begin to uh, create something then that we then begin to bow down and to adore in such a way because God says, I'm a jealous God. And whenever we give our worship to something else, God views it in a jealous love for us as spiritual adultery. Because he wants our absolute devotion and attention. He says, I'm a jealous God, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And take note of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God speaks very directly to this dangerous pattern at times that can develop where he says, those who hate him, he says at times, unfortunately, and this is true, I mean, again, maybe look at your own family patterns, look at what you see in society, where what begins to happen is the sins of one generation begin to then affect and impact and influence generations that follow. And God says, this is what happens among those who hate me. One of the curses of that type of a rebellion against God and hating God and living in iniquity is God says what happens is oftentimes it's not that children are being punished for the sins of the parents. Again, Ezekiel 18 keeps us in balance and context there. God says the soul that sins shall surely die. And, and, and God makes it very clear that the sins of the father don't cause the son to be punished and the sins of a son don't cause a father to be punished. God's very clear about that. But what does begin to happen is when there are people who hate God and live in sin and live in rebellion and they expose their children to that, unfortunately what often happens is the children then grow up and they embrace the sins of the parents and they embrace the ungodly lifestyles of the parents and they emulate that and the natural seed of rebellion within them takes the same sinful patterns and they perpetuate it in the next generation. And then they pass it on to the next generation. And it becomes this horrific cycle that we see happen in families. Where, where, where cyclical patterns happen with sin and rebellion of those who, who hate God. Until someone comes along who decides they're going to love the Lord... And say, you know what, I'm tired of this pattern. I'm going to be a chain breaker and I'm going to love the Lord and break this chain so that it doesn't continue in the next generation. The Lord says when that happens, that he intervenes with mercy to the thousands of those who love him and choose to keep his commandments. Verse 7, he then goes on to give us a third commandment. He says, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here God speaks of having reverence for who he is. When the Bible speaks of the name of God, the Bible tells us to pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, whenever two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst. And when the Bible speaks of the name of someone, it speaks of the identity or the representation of a person. It's not just a title. The word name, when it speaks of the name of God, it's a representation of all of who God is. So the Bible tells us here that, that God is warning them, listen, you need to have reverence for who I am 
and how I represent myself. So he says, when someone takes my name and claims to belong to me, and then in my name, they do things that are ungodly and in a sense, desecrate the name of God and wrongly represent God. God says, I won't hold them guiltless for that. Now, again, how do people do this? Well, I mean, I think certainly there are numbers of ways that this can be done. You know, people who, in a sense, use God's name in a profane way and have no reverence for the name of God. You know, on the construction site, somebody bangs their thumb with, with a hammer and, and, you know, what always comes out, you know, hmm, hmm. And it's amazing how you know, people never feel compelled to, you know, say, oh, Muhammad, 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 you know, that doesn't happen, right? It's never that, or, or you know, Buddha, Buddha, oh, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. You know, people don't do that because the one true and living God, whether people are profaning God's name or praising God's name, there's something in the conscience of every human being that I just think knows who the one true and living God is. And it is amazing that our God, our Savior, is the one who always gets his name profaned. Uh, and, and God says here, you know, that he won't hold those guiltless who who do such things. But I think another way in which at times people can be guilty of this same thing is when people do things that are ungodly and they do them in the name of the Lord. And, 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 and people you know, do things that are unscriptural. People do things where they maybe rip people off, they steal money from people, they, they do things, and then they just use the name of God as a cloak to cover up the things that they're doing or they profess to be a Christian and yet they live completely contradictory and they just use the name of God as a covering to try and hide who they are or what they're really doing. And, and God says, I, I don't take too lightly to that. And tragically that happens. Tragically that happens. People take the name of God but they live in complete contradiction to that and the name of God is just empty to them. It's worthless. It means nothing. It's just an empty phrase that they throw around lightly. And the Bible says that let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That when we represent the Lord, we should represent him genuinely and not in emptiness and in a vain way because God says that he won't hold guiltless those who do such things. Verse 8, he says, and remember the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant or female servant for cattle, nor your cattle, nor your stranger within your gates. And, and here's the reason why. Again, they, they served God, they represented God for, verse 11, here's the basis, God says, for in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. Now, we'll see as we get further along in our study that this actually becomes a covenant, the covenant of the Sabbath that God makes specifically, and the Bible is very specific, with the nation of Israel. But God establishes this pattern for them whereby they would have six days whereby they could dedicate themselves to their work, they could accomplish their labors, but there was one day out of seven that God gave to them that God says, you need to shut it down. You need to cease from your labors. 
You, you, you need to, in faith, trust me that I'll make up the extra time, make up the extra. And, and one in seven, God says, I created you. I know how I made you. And no matter how much you need to accomplish or how extensive your workload may be, God says, listen, I'm God. I created the whole heavens and the earth. I got a bigger workload than you ever had. And God says, I created the heavens and earth in six days and I, and I set aside one and I rested on the seventh day. And God establishes this as a pattern. Again, he made us and he knows that sometimes we need rejuvenation. We need a sense of rest. We need to cease from our own labors and just rest physically as well as to be able to just have a time of rest spiritually to give our attention and devotion to the Lord and that's what the Sabbath day the seventh day became for them it started sundown Friday to sundown Saturday and it was a time that they would take and they would worship the Lord upon that day They'd give their full attention to God so that they weren't distracted. The family would cease from what they were doing. Notice he tells them in verse 9 and 10, six days. You have six days, he says. Get all your work done that you can in those six days. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It was something that they were to spend together with God. The family was to cease from what they were doing. And you know what? That's a really great pattern, quite honestly. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic pattern. You know, God knows that sometimes it is just as sacred for us to rest as it is for us to be doing things and trying to accomplish things. And so God establishes this pattern and it became a covenant mark of the people of Israel, his Jewish people, that they were to observe. Now, ultimately, this Sabbath that they would observe ultimately became something that was a foreshadowing of what God would ultimately accomplish for us in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 and other places tell us that Jesus himself becomes our rest. Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And in a sense, Jesus fulfilling the law, in a sense, becomes our Sabbath rest. See, on the Sabbath, what do they do? They ceased from their labors and they just rested in God. They ceased from any work. And they just rested in God. And, and spiritually, it speaks of what we experience in Jesus Christ. God wants us to cease from our works. He doesn't want us to try and achieve or accomplish or work in some way to experience salvation. The Bible says that we're saved by grace and through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. And there is a rest for the soul. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And he said, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you shall find rest for your souls. And see, in the same way they ceased from their labors physically and had physical rest, Jesus, in a sense, said, look, I want you to cease from laboring religiously and spiritually and trying to make me pleased with you and trying to earn my favor and to just rest in faith in the finished work of my son. Again, Jesus said it is finished. There is a spiritual rest of the soul that God wants us to enter into by faith whereby we stop working and we stop trying to keep God happy and we stop wrestling and feeling like, well, I didn't perform good enough so I got to try harder tomorrow or I got to achieve more because I got I to get back in right standing with God and God says, would you give it a rest? Would you just trust me? 
You can't add to what Jesus did. You can't fulfill more than what my son's already fulfilled. And there's a rest for the soul in faith whereby we cease from working. Again, they came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and they said, teach us. What are the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Do you, do you, what are the works? Plural. What works do we do to keep God happy? Jesus said, this is the work, singular, of God. Believe upon the one whom the Father has sent. Jesus said, okay, do you, you really want to do something? Here's your, here's your job. <laughs> Believe. Believe upon me. And experience the rest for your soul. And of course the Sabbath as they observed it. It's a great pattern certainly. We're not called to obey and observe the Sabbath. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where that prohibition is in a sense you know, enforced upon us as it was something for the nation of Israel. But it's something that's fulfilled in Christ. It was something they observed. It marked them as a people. But I do think it's a wonderful, wonderful pattern. I think you should take a day and unplug. We, we, we need to be willing to trust the Lord and, and at times be rejuvenated and just give him our full attention. So the first four commandments, you know, sort of the first table of the law, it deals with the vertical. They're all things in relation to someone's experience directly with God and their vertical relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's between you and God. That you'd have no other God, no other thing that you worship in his presence that he would reverse. That you would not make a carved image to bow down to or to serve. That's between you and God. He says, the third commandment, that you won't take the Lord's name in vain and misrepresent the Lord in a casual way or in a carnal way. And that you would remember the Sabbath because it would be a Sabbath unto the Lord and that you rest and trust what God has asked by observing his commandments. And again, those are all in relation to God on the vertical. As he comes now to verse 12, which becomes then the fifth of these Ten Commandments, the second table of law, they all have to do with our relationship with people on the horizontal. It's, it's really a beautiful thing. And notice that God puts that which is of the vertical relationship between us and him first. Because the truth of the matter is, until things are right vertically between you and God, things will never work out on the horizontal. You'll never be able to have a healthy relationship with people in your marriage or respecting and valuing human life or not wanting to steal from somebody or, or, or you know, not lying and cheating against other people until you have a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God is the starting place. And when we have a right relationship with God vertically, it's amazing how then things can begin to balance out in our horizontal relationships. And it is an interesting, you look at the table of the law, first four commandments between us and God, the last six commandments between one another on the horizontal, it almost kind of forms a cross. Isn't that unique? I'm sure there's no coincidence in that as well. And here God now begins to speak in the second table. And notice, interesting, the first thing he speaks about Verse 12, as he says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So the first thing God speaks about in regards to our relationship with one another is that children would have respect and reverence for their parents. He speaks of the family relationship. Now, I think that that is purposeful because the truth of the matter is and, and when we get to chapter 21 and begin to move forward we'll have all these miscellaneous little civil laws so that society would be able to operate in a way that was healthy and functional and there'll be all these different little miscellaneous laws but again God puts up front right away the very first thing is that things would be what right in the home 
that there would be order in the family. Because the truth of the matter is, think about it, the family and the family order and the family life is the backbone to society. If you have healthy families, you'll have a healthy culture. If you have children who are being raised in a way that they understand authority and submission and proper respect for their parents, then they're going to understand authority and submission and proper respect for the society and the culture that they live in. And they're going to realize, look, in the same way, I am in this role, my parent is in this role, and therefore I need to be respectful to their authority that translates then to going out into society and being a citizen that represents the same thing in the culture, whether it's in the school system or with the government or in any other place in the society of structure. So the first thing God speaks of is children having a proper reverence and respect for their mother and their father. Again, and, and that applies from you know, being a young person and being obedient and, and respecting the authority that God has established in the home, that a child is to be submissive to their parents, they're to be obedient as unto the Lord, that that is their role and responsibility. Their way to serve the Lord is to be obedient and respectful to their parents. But I, I think, again, as you follow it through, that's something that continues on as God spoke of this. It wasn't just when you were 6 or 8 or 12 or 14 and being obedient to the rules of the house of your parents until you left when God spoke to them of honoring their mother and father, it conveyed honoring them, cherishing them with a level of reverence and respect, whereby as they began to age, then eventually what begins to happen? It's almost as if sort of an inversion happens in roles. Because their parents would begin to age in that culture. Listen, please understand, uh, they didn't have senior homes that they would put their parents in and spend thousands of dollars to keep them tended to and have somebody take care of them. No, what they did was realize, listen, you brought me into this world and you fed me and you wiped my rear end and you took care of me and you sustained me and now, since you did that to me for a season, reciprocally in love, when you need that at a stage in your life, I owe you the same. I'm honor-bound to do the same for you. And it is the honorable thing to be able to now give back to you in the same way that you contributed so much to me. And, and God expected them to care for their parents in that way, to honor them and to honor them in those latter years when in a sense the roles began to change and they became in their elderly years the dependent one where the children in love would show honor to them by caring for them and helping them in ways that they needed to help support them and to sustain them. Again, remember Jesus addressed this even in the Gospels when people in that day trying to avert this commandment of honor your father and mother, what they were doing is they were saying whatever money or resources they could use to take care of their parents, they were saying, well, that money is Corbin. We devoted it to God. We, any money we would have spent to you know, build a little addition on here so that we could take care of uh, you know, mom now that pop's passed on to be you know, kind of help her out for the last couple. That money, we, we would do that, but that money, we devoted that money to God. And, and Jesus, Jesus, in a sense, chastised them for trying to avert that commandment that God had set there in sort of this super spiritual way of not giving proper allegiance to what God's word said and kind of trying to find a loophole in the process. So again, God calling us to have appreciation for the parental figures in our life. Verse 13, he then says, and you shall not murder. 
And it shouldn't say you shall not kill because then it creates confusion because people interpret that term there as, well, what about warfare and so on and so forth. The term literally in the Hebrew implies murdering, taking someone's life, taking an innocent life. Uh, it's not speaking there of you know capital punishment, which God says later on is something that society should do as a deterrent at times to, to rid society of those who, in a sense, were just harmful and destructive. There are times where God commands his people to engage in military conflict, which involves loss of life. This is speaking of taking the innocent life of another person out of anger or for selfish motivations or malice, and God says, you shall not murder. You know, isn't it interesting as you look at these things, how they become reflective of the reality that God knows the human heart. You always think, well, why would you have to tell somebody don't murder? I mean... <laughs> Well, because the reality is, is God knows our propensity. God knows our propensity. And God, almost as he gives these things, says, listen, I know what you're going to be prone to. I know what you're capable of. You know, Jesus ultimately takes this and goes to levels deeper. He says, you shall not murder. Jesus ultimately says, look, you, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you have hatred and animosity in your heart, whereby, again, you, you wish your brother... <laughs> could be murdered but you're just refraining outwardly jesus says you're already guilty of the same thing you've already done it in your heart he says here in this next statement you shall not commit adultery and there god is calling them to have reverence for the marital relationship the marital institution verse 13 you shall not murder god says i want you to appreciate the sanctity of life you need to appreciate the sanctity of human life and not murder someone. That's not man's prerogative to determine when somebody else's life should end. God says you should value human life. And in verse 14, he speaks of valuing the marital relationship, not committing adultery. And again, Jesus also ultimately alludes to this in the New Testament saying to us, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And, and, and Jesus takes it to another level, reminding us, again, not just the conformity to the law, but, but the conviction in the heart of man being something that God sees on a much deeper level that though we may outwardly conform to something that God sees beyond that in the heart. Verse 15, he says, you shall not steal. And the idea is taking something that does not belong to you rightly. And we can steal in many different ways, quite honestly, taking what does not belong to you somehow for yourself. You shall not, verse 16, bear false witness. So any form of lying or deceitfulness, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And verse 17, the, the tenth thing he mentions is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the word covet means to have a strong desire for something that someone else has that you don't possess. So uh, again, and take note, verse 17 here, now God actually zeroes into the heart condition because all the other things thus far have been outward. Murder, that's outward and evident when you commit it. Adultery, that's outward and evident when you commit it. When you steal something, that's outward and evident. If you bear false testimony or lie, that's outward and evident. But people can't see one another coveting. That's something that goes on in the heart. But God sees the heart. And see, God doesn't let us escape the internal things that go on in our heart. Remember Paul in Romans 7 ultimately says, this is the one that got me. 
He says, I was doing good. I was tracking through the law and you know, make no carved image, bow down to it. Don't murder. All right, I haven't murdered anybody yet. I'm pretty righteous as a Pharisee. Don't commit adultery. I've never committed adultery. I've never done that in my entire life. Doing pretty good. And he's worked. I've never stolen from anybody. Never borne false witness. And then Paul said, when I came to that covet thing, oh, that got me. That got me. Because there, there, there's that propensity in our heart where at times we long for what we don't have. And, and it stems from discontentment. From discontentment within us where we want what someone else has that we don't possess. So he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. That is, you shouldn't be discontent with your property and look longingly upon this person's property and, and be discontent. Oh, man, they got this. Well, how, why do they got that? You know, and, 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 and here I am living in this you know, crummy place and, 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 and being discontent. And God says, that's sinful. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Again, being jealous of someone else's marriage. Or being jealous because someone has a marriage and you don't have a marriage. God says that's sinful. You should be content in your condition. Nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox or his Lexus or Jeep or anything else. The idea there, you know, modes of transportation, his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Verse 18, he says, Now all these people witness the thunderings, the lightnings, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You shall speak with us and we will hear, but let not notice God speak with us lest we die. It was an overwhelming experience. As God was speaking these things, it was such an awesome experience and the voice of God was so powerful. Nobody was ignoring it. Nobody was sloughing it off. Nobody was falling asleep in the middle of giving it the Ten Commandments. You know, it, it, just, it was overwhelming. So much of the people said, listen, we can't handle one more commandment. The voice of God is so powerful. It was so overwhelming when God was speaking to them. It literally says that people were having a physical reaction. They literally were trembling because of the awesomeness of the presence of God and the power of his voice when he was speaking to the people. And Moses said to the people, verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Interesting. Moses says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you. Now, how would God test them? Through the commandments, through the law. God would test their hearts in regards to the condition of their heart before him. Now, we come into a clear understanding of this as we come into the New Testament where you know, Romans chapter 3 specifically is one of the places where the Bible tells us that righteousness does not come by the law, but by the law, the Bible says, comes the knowledge of sin. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. We're not living under the requirements of the law anymore. We're not obligated to fulfill, in a sense, to be righteous before God. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're not obligated to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in order to have a righteous standing before God. The Bible tells us that the law of God is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And it's through the law, like a mirror, when you hold a mirror up to your face, what happens? You see a reality check of what's really true about yourself. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you see, that's what I really look like? I, that, that, it, it tells the truth about who you are. And that's what the law does. 
as God gave them the law, the law revealed to them, guess what? You're a lawbreaker. You don't keep this. You're a sinner. You fail. You fall short of this. And the law, in a sense, was like a speed limit sign. Speed limit signs don't make people speed. Speed limit signs reveal to people that they're breaking the law. <laughs> the speed limit signs is, look, I, oh, yeah, I'm breaking the law. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, typically a speed limit sign isn't something we're speeding up to. We're usually hitting the brake because we realize, oh, I'm breaking the law here. So it reveals what we do wrong. And the law is giving as a standard to us in a sense, to cause us to realize that we're sinners and to make us recognize that we need forgiveness and we need a Savior. And God tests us through the law. The law becomes a schoolmaster to ultimately bring us as a sinner to Jesus Christ as the Savior and to desire His righteousness that He provides for us. Now, that being said, as I said a minute ago, please don't misunderstand me. This is a divinely mandated moral code of how we should live before God and among one another. And when you look in the New Testament, nine of the Ten Commandments are all, in a sense, reiterated in some form all throughout the New Testament epistles. Point being this, we're still not supposed to murder, okay? <laughs> we're, we're still not supposed to commit adultery. We're still not supposed to lie. First John says, little children... You know, rid yourself of idols. We're still not supposed to have idolatry. So we, in a sense, have all these things still binding upon us in principle, but they're not something, in a sense, that are put upon us in a way whereby we might achieve righteousness. In fact, even for the children of Israel, as soon as God gives them the law, what's the very next thing he's going to give them very soon? The sacrificial system. Because God's going to say, I need to give you a sacrificial system because you're going to fail. The law is going to be your standard and you're going to see you don't meet the standard and therefore I need to arrange for forgiveness because you can't keep the law. So yes, these things morally, we are still in a sense obligated to in a moral standing that we should seek to aspire to live according to these things. And nine of the ten are all reiterated. The only one that is not in a sense put upon the church is the Sabbath. Because it was something God uniquely gave to Israel and Hebrews 4 says it is something that was a foreshadowing for you and I that we were to recognize in the work and the person of Jesus. He goes on to say to us here, verse 21, So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you, we already saw this, talked with you from Israel heaven and you shall not make anything to be with me gods of silver or gods of gold and you shall not make for yourselves verse 24 and an altar of earth and an altar basically if you simplify it is a place of sacrifice it's a place of worship that's what an altar became it was a place of worship a place of sacrifice so god said this to them they knew exactly what god meant when he spoke of an altar and look what he says in these last few verses to them. Interesting instructions. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And God will give them further explanation and instruction about these offerings in the chapters to come as he continues to unfold more explanation of the law. But he says, you shall sacrifice your offerings upon it, 
And in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make an altar of stones, so if you don't make it of earth and dirt, if you choose to make it of earthen stones, God says, instead of a, a mound of dirt, then you shall not build it of hewn stone. The idea is carved or chiseled out stone, artistic stone, where you're you know, carving it out in an artistic fashion. You shall not build it of hewn stone. Just use rough, natural stone the way it is. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor, God says, interesting, shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Now, I think God is communicating something very clear here. As he talks to them again in these last three verses here about the altar, which would become a crucial part of the children of Israel's experience with God. The altar was a place of sacrifice where blood was shed, where sacrifices were offered unto God for sin, for fellowship, for peace offerings, for consecration to God. So it was a place of sacrifice and it was a place of worship. And God says, in the place of sacrifice and worship, interesting, he says, in that place, the place of sacrifice of worship, he says, that is the place, he says, verse 24, that I will come to you and I will bless you. I'll put my name upon that and I will come to you and I will bless you. And that is why, as God's speaking about the place of sacrifice and worship, why God is saying, listen, because that is the place where my presence will be manifest, where I'll meet you. And what does it take to want to, you know, we want to experience the presence of God, don't we? Oh, we want to experience the presence of God. We want to experience the presence of God. Well, God says, do you know where I'll manifest my presence? Do you know where I'll meet you? In the place of sacrifice and in the place of worship. Not in a place of programs, not in a place of all these fun and games and extracurricular activities. God says, no, in the place of sacrifice and in the place of worship. God says, that's where my presence will be manifest. That's where my name and my person will be experienced. And God says, and interesting, that's the place I'll bless you. Do you want to be blessed? I want to be blessed. What does it take to experience the blessing of God? God says, my blessing is upon sincere worship. My blessing is upon a place where there are hearts that are poured out in sacrifice and worship before me. When I am the main priority and I'm the main focus of attention and all the attention is not diverted to all these other things that we think that we need somehow. Oh, it's got to be this. It's got to be more fancy. It's got to be more exciting. It's got to be... And, and, we, and God says, no. God says, when you make me an altar, make it a dirt. Make it a dirt. And he says, if you don't use dirt, if you want to use stones, don't make carved fancy stones. I don't need carved fancy stones. God says, just simple stones. What I care about is reaching your heart and you experiencing me and me experiencing you. And I think that's even why there in verse 26, God even says, don't make steps because many times they would make altars higher so that they would seem and appear like the Canaanite people to be more sacred and special as they would climb up and ascend these steps. And God says, don't make a bunch of steps lest your nakedness be exposed on it. Again, they wore robes, flowing robes. And God says, I don't want the person who's leading the worship service climbing up the steps and somebody going, hey, check out his legs. What do you think of that? And you know, you know we laugh, but what does God know? God knows how stinking easy we're distracted. Isn't it not true? 
Because that's exactly what would happen. In the midst of a place of worship, people were going, wow, that priest has got hairy legs. He's got some, that guy's got really bony legs, doesn't he? And how easily we're distracted. So God says, listen, when you make an altar, I don't want you to make something in such a way whereby people's attention is diverted to the altar instead of the purpose of what the altar's for. Whereby it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful that people are distracted from me. And God says, I don't want you to have these steps so that, again, just the, the bottoms of the legs, the nakedness, the flesh of the priest or whoever is somehow exposed. And he says, that causes as well a distraction. What's God saying? He's saying, I don't want nothing or no one to draw attention away from me. And God knows how easily that happens among us in worship. How we're prone to that how it is something that we all struggle with, our attention span. We're sheep, man. The tiniest things distract us. I think it's interesting he speaks of the nakedness because what's nakedness referred to? Flesh. Flesh. And God says, I, I don't want fleshly things. I don't want the flesh involved in worship. I don't want any aspect of human flesh drawing attention away from what I'm doing. When there's an experience of worship, listen, we need to be willing to be sensitive and reverent before God to say, Lord, help me that there would be nothing in my flesh that would draw attention away from you and your glory. That I would not allow desires of my flesh or propensities of my flesh or aspects of my flesh or needs of my flesh, whether it's I enjoy attention or my personality or just in consideration of other people and letting my human spirit, in a sense, interrupt and interfere with what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of God's people at a time of worship when we're before the altar of the Lord and we're to be giving full attention to Him. And God says, be careful of this, be careful of this. And, you know, this is something I think we all need to be sensitive to in our lives because we don't ever want to be doing anything in any way where our flesh or some aspect of our flesh or what we, you know, the way that we do something that's connected to the experience of worship causes people's attention to be diverted away from God and drawn to us. God help us. We want the focus to be on the Lord. God says, I'll share my glory with, with no one. And we want to make sure that God's receiving due attention. Let's